From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. Recently, the issue of the 2020 census has become intertwined with the debate over immigration. What are the facts? What are the implications? We'll take a closer look at both issues on today's program. The U.S. Constitution requires that every 10 years, the total number of people residing in the United States, including citizens and non-citizens, are counted. The simple act of counting people for the 2020 census, however, is becoming anything but. What are the issues, and what would an undercount mean for California? We'll ask Alex Padilla, California's Secretary of State, John Myers with the L.A. Times, and Sarah Bone with the Public Policy Institute of California. Countdown to the 2020 Census. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world, as well as support from Era Energy LLC, Bonner Family Foundation, Community Medical Centers, Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant, Nossaman LLC, Sagasser Watkins and Wheeland, and Valley Children's Hospital. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. The 2020 Census will have major implications for California. Our guest is Sarah Bowen, who is the Director of Research at the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California, and she's here to help explain everything about the 2020 Census. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Thank you. So could you give our audience kind of a primer on the 2020 Census? The who, what, when, where, you don't need to say why, we know why, we're counting, uh, and how of the census? Sure. So every 10 years, as mandated by the Constitution, the U.S. government undertakes a systematic count of everyone residing in the U.S., regardless of their citizenship. And the Census Bureau asks... So that's an important point. It's population, not citizenship. That's right. It's all residents. Okay. Um, and, and the census asks us to respond uh, with just a few key pieces of information about uh, age, um, race, ethnicity, home ownership, and household members, um, and maybe this time around about citizenship. Yeah. Um, this happens April. The, the census day is April 1st, 2020. But, April 1st, okay, that's... Yeah, <laughs> April Fool's Day. could be problematic, yeah. <laughs> but you could expect to start seeing mailings from the Census Bureau as early as March 2020. Okay, um, and and this is for it's. There are a lot of implications of the census. One of them is political. Um, so, what are the political implications for the twenty twenty census? Well, this is really the the key purpose of the census, um, as written into the Constitution. The census count allocates seats in uh, the U.S. House of Representatives across states. There's a fixed number of seats, and they allocate it based on population. So, in That's other right. words, if some other states are growing faster than California, let's say Texas they're going to get more congressional seats, we'll lose seats. Yeah. That's the way it works. And that's what we expect to see. Okay. We we expect, based on population trends, if the census is accurate, that California will maintain probably its 53 seats. We could stand to possibly lose a seat. And uh, faster-growing states like Texas, uh, Oregon, uh, Arizona, I think, uh, Colorado are on the list, yeah. um, who are likely to gain a seat in Congress. Yeah, and one of the problems is there's also folks that are uh, hard to count, um, whether they're renters or homeless or whatever. And the more you have of those, the more likely you're undercount, and that could imp- have an impact on things like representation. Exactly. Um, but there's another thing that has uh, implications for, and that is the, the distribution of federal dollars. Um, some of the dollars, not all of the federal dollars, obviously, but some of the dollars are tied to population. How much does that mean in real dollars for California? 
So in recent years, uh, we've received over $100 billion um, in wow. federal funds to California that are tied in some way to our population count. So the census really has become an indispensable part of um, the federal government allocating those resources in the way that's intended by policy. So sometimes it's on a per capita basis, sometimes it's trying to target certain populations like say young children in poverty mm -hmm. and census statistics and other census bureau statistics feed into that um, and really help kind of allocate funds in a way that we think is fair and is in line with intentions of but policymakers. But not, not every federal program is based on this. For example, Medicaid, my understanding is there's like a set minimum that California is going to qualify for regardless. Correct? That's right, which is good because that's a big budget right, number huge. for the state. Um, so we're kind of at the minimum level, and undercount will probably not will not affect our Medicaid dollars, federal dollars that come to California. But other programs like transportation dollars, um, children's health insurance program right. are a couple examples um, where uh, a differential or a you know an an inaccurate census could affect the dollars going into communities across the state. Right, okay. So uh, in addition to congressional representation and allocating federal dollars, what else is the census used for? Well, it gives us really a detailed portrait of our population, and it's a rare once every 10 years opportunity to do that. So in a sense, the census will follow us for 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, it's the most detailed picture of residents of our state. We also build uh, well, the Census Bureau builds surveys, annual surveys, on kind of the frame of the cens decennial census count. So when you see monthly unemployment numbers or other annual statistics about our population, our labor market, our economy, a lot of that is kind of built on the foundation of the census. And that's why it's so critical to get it right in 2020. But you know, there's also local governments use this as well, right? And, and K-12 and businesses. I mean, this is more than just how many people and that the government needs for reallocation of representation or money. It's, a lot of people use this number. Yeah, businesses, um, hospitals, researchers. schools, researchers use it to you know understand the impacts of policy, um, but also to target kind of services, to target business locations and things like that. It's, it's really indispensable for just understanding uh, California. Who we are. Okay, yeah. up next, some of the fastest growing groups in California are also the hardest to count. Um, so what is California doing to deal with that hard-to-count population? That conversation next. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking about the 2020 Census with Sarah Bone, the Director of Research and Senior Fellow at the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. Um, you know, it's been stated that there are some large segments of California's population that are historically hard to count. Who are these individuals and why are they so hard to count? So renters, young men, in particular, children, um, African-American residents and Latinos in California have uh, historically been undercounted in decennial censuses. This is despite the Census Bureau's best efforts to count everybody um, as accurately as possible. Um, in California, about two-thirds, sorry, three-quarters of our population belong to one or more of these demographic groups, which bring makes it a, quite a challenge. Three-quarters are hard to count. That's right. Wow. And so, so you have a situation at renters where you have roommates who maybe want to say that it's only supposed to be a single, and they got two people living there. Those kind of situations. Yeah. No, you don't, okay. Uh, you want to say anything about? I'm well, sorry. the census is a household survey, so right. it's easiest to count households where it's a homeowner who's been there for a while, right. which tend to be. Um, white, older residents of California. They're the easiest to count. And so younger populations or populations that move more often more transient, are just... Moving around in yeah. different locations. That's yeah, typically... It's harder to count. Um, so uh, what are some of the political and economic factors that could exacerbate the problems um, and, and why? 
So things like you know housing, the housing crisis, for yeah. example. How does that impact the census or the citizenship question, for example? The housing crisis is is one I'm particularly concerned about because, as we talked about, this is a household survey, um, and the housing crisis has pushed more families or individuals into non-standard arrangements. So maybe splitting a house or splitting a unit in a way that's not even reflected in an address role, and so those um, those households won't be surveyed in the same way. So yeah, that's pretty a problem like in the high rent districts right the, the coast um, right. I'm thinking there's also going to be a situation in the inland part you know if you have a lot of undocumented that that's also going to be an issue and that gets to kind of that citizenship question of whether they're concerned that somehow that's going to come back and, and, and hurt them in some way yeah um, so, so what about the citizenship? Because there's been a lot of talk about the citizenship question. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? That's right. I think the the current political climate, both federal, mostly federally, um, makes reasonably makes immigrants more reluctant to mm -hmm. respond to government surveys. And the citizenship question has just kind of highlighted that distrust of government and uncertainty. Um, and so, you know, I think um, a lot of uh, a lot of residents of California, when they receive a form from the government or somebody, a Census Bureau worker knocking on their door, um, might be uh, unsure of whether right. they can safely respond. Even though in in federal law, the census is only to be used for counting the population, population. and no other purpose. Well, let me ask you this: you know, the, your your organization, the PPIC, reports that the, the, these hurdles have intensified about under uh, undercounting and. Uh, noted that the GAO, the, the uh, Governmental Accounting Office, has designated the 2020 census as a quote-unquote high risk for failure. How so? A couple of the factors that have played into that risk of failure have been um, vacancies and leadership at the Census Bureau, some of which now have been filled, but I understand that a few still remain, and just the resources um, and capacity to test new systems. So this census will be the first that we're trying to mostly collect online responses. Um, it's, a, it's a whole new way, actually, of conducting the census. And, um, it kind of makes an assumption that everybody has a computer, everybody has access to the Internet. Yeah, I mean, the Census Bureau will target areas that have more access to the internet and and those who don't will receive a paper form but nonetheless it's it's a big shift in how they collect information which in the long run could be a cost-saving measure um, but poses some challenges this time around you, you also were mentioning that testing it so they're trying a new procedure but they haven't really tested whether it's going to work They've had to, because of budget um, shortfalls, kind of pull back on some of the planned tests. Right. Um, I, they're doing a lot of testing to make sure this works. But the citizenship question, which was added very late in the game, there isn't much time to test that question to see how um, it changes uh, response rates. It, it seems to me like there's an emphasis on efficiency somewhat over effectiveness. In other words, doing this the census as, frankly, as cheaply as possible, and that may cause you a problem in terms of getting a correct count. It's definitely a risk. I think the Bureau switching to technologies that we right. all use every day is a, definitely a reasonable way to go about it. And the Census Bureau staff are, you know, extremely serious about their jobs and do actually an amazing job at counting the millions of people that we have in, in um, the state and the country. Um, but there are some risks, extra risks this time around. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, uh, up next, we're going to talk about a, talk to a person who's key in helping ensure that California does get an accurate count. That's California Secretary of State Alex Padilla. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Our guest is California Secretary of State Alex Padilla, state official who has a key role here in making sure we have an accurate count of the census here in California. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Um, so what specific actions is your office taking to ensure that the 2020 census will be a complete count 
and get the right number of people in the state, and also an accurate count uh, that we capture the characteristics of the people correctly. Right. It's not just my office. I'm, I'm asking every public official to leverage their office to put the word out of why it's important for every Californian to participate in the 2020 census, uh, because there's so much at stake. You know, it's a once every 10 year survey required by the U.S. Constitution, right, to conduct a national population count. Uh, the results of the census, it's data that if mo people know anything about the census, they know that it's what drives federal funding formulas right. for the next 10 years. So what's at stake? For starters, billions upon billions of federal funds for health care, for education, for infrastructure, transportation, housing, etc. But in addition to that, census data drives the reapportionment process. Right, how many representatives California versus other states uh, get in the U.S. House of Representatives. So literally, our voice in Congress is at stake, which is why we're going to work so hard to make sure we get as an accurate account as possible. You know, you've written that, quote, the Trump administration is working deliberately to undermine the accuracy of the count. California can't afford to sit idly by while the administration sabotages the census. Why do you feel that way? Look, it's uh, no secret Trump has uh, California in the crosshairs. Whatever he can do to damage California, he'll do that, whether it's you know, jeopardizing federal funds uh, or anything else. But in this particular case, how about locking in a federal funding formula for the next decade that hurts California? Uh, so what are the tactics that the administration has used to try to risk a, a, an accurate count? Uh, most recently, we've heard of this addition of a citizenship question, right? We now, now, why is that a problem? I mean. Under the, under the Constitution, we're supposed to count population, correct. not citizens, correct? Correct. Okay, so why is citizenship, why is that question, why is that troublesome to you? Because we, it's not just uh, uh, that we're skeptical. We've seen the effect of a question about citizenship in the past. It discourages or intimidates diverse communities from participating in the census. That's the reason that it hasn't appeared on the decennial census for more than 70 years under both Republican and Democratic administrations. And the, the Census Bureau themselves have kind of said that the citizenship question could be problematic. And they're scientists, they're advisors, everybody gets it. They've advised against it. This administration doesn't care. They've put it on in addition to, you know, for several years, the Census Bureau was underfunded and understaffed. So a lot of the preparation going into uh, the decennial census year, uh, they're, they're trying to play catch up now. I'm not sure they're going to get there. Uh, and another bit that most people aren't talking about is this will be the first digital first census. Explain that. So, you know, most of us who've been around a, a while <laughs> remember getting a form in the mailbox. I don't know why you looked at me years. when you said that. But <laughs> uh, I said us. I said us. You, you did. Know, to, to, you know, how many people live in the household and then right. all the information about them that's uh, requested in the census. Mm -hmm. This time it's going to be different. You will get a letter with instructions of how to go online and submit that information. Well, I see a lot of problems with that. I, mean, uh, I see a lot of problems with that, too. There is still a digital divide in America. There's still a digital divide in California, both from an access standpoint and a literacy standpoint. So we have to overcome right. that in pursuit and of an accurate those, count. those very populations that are hard to count are the very people most likely not to have computers or access to computers or computer literacy. Exactly, and all the data is there. So right. uh, knowing that we can't count on the federal government as a, as a key partner in this year's census, California is stepping up. Uh, Governor Brown on his way out and Governor Newsom uh, uh, in his first year are investing state uh, dollars to do the budget for early planning and outreach plans going into 2020. Yeah. Um, the, the census that, that uh, citizenship question, is that information going to be shared with, if they get that question on uh, on the census, would that be shared with other, other government agencies like like ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement? Uh, it's not supposed to, uh, right? But every 10 years uh, that 
that outreach to hard to count communities is important because there's already a lack of trust to be overcome in getting people to participate in the census. Right. Clearly, we're in a unique time right now, not just in the national political environment, but the specific tone and tenor coming out of the Oval Office right now. So all that much more work to do to try to rebuild confidence with, with people to make sure they participate in the census and that their information uh, will not be used for other purposes. The other thing, too, I just want to ask really quickly about uh, the digital divide and using this technology. It seems like they're focusing on being efficient in counting, but not necessarily effective because they haven't really tested whether this stuff works, have they? No. Uh, again, in the years leading up to the decennial census, the Bureau has been understaffed. Uh, and they haven't made the, the, the plans nor tested the questions in the various formats. It's typical of what you would do in a survey right. like this. Right, I'm uh, sure it works. So yeah, I'm, so, I wanna, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for interrupting you. Um, I want to ask one last question, sure. if I can fit one in here, about 45 seconds. Uh, the LAO, Legislative Analyst Office, uh, recently reported that with better funding, better technology, and better statistical analysis, it's unlikely that California is going to have the, an undercount along the lines of the one we had in 1990. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, in an ideal world, maybe, but we're not getting that uh, sufficient funding out of the federal government. California is trying to fill a hole uh, along with counties and cities up and down the state. Uh, and the ideal technology assumes everybody has access to it. Uh, but that's not the case. So uh, we know what we're up against. We're prepared to uh, step up to the challenge. Yeah, billions of dollars at stake. Thank you very much for being with us, Secretary Padilla. Thank up you. next, the politics of the 2020 census with LA Times Sacramento Bureau Chief John Myers. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. So how will the 2020 census shape California's politics in the coming decade? Our guest is John Myers, LA Times Sacramento Bureau Chief. He's the right person to ask. Um, <laughs> I so, hope so. <laughs> welcome back Thanks. to the Maddie Report. So a major political controversy surrounds, uh, surrounding the 2020 census is whether a question about citizenship should be included. Some have noted that the citizenship question has been asked in the past. Of course, the last time it was asked for everyone was 1950. Um, but why is it so controversial now? Well, in 1950, we were a very different California, uh, fewer people and, and diversity um, not the same as it is today. It's, it's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think it's important symbolically, and I think some of the critics of asking the question see the symbolism of a change in the conversation nationally about immigration, about diversity. Um, but it does have real-world implications. Uh, funding formulas are tied to the census, so the size of your population, but how much money you get from the federal government, clearly representation in Congress, House of Representatives, and whether or not California keeps all of its seats or loses one of its seats as other states grow a little bit bigger. The implications are big. I think we have only heard the beginning of this fight. I think we're going to hear a lot more. Yeah, it's, there, is a, there are a lot of people that are undocumented like within families. And so people, I guess, are concerned that somehow that they're going to be outed, um, the undocumented, if, if they, I guess, get involved with the census, if they're involved in answering or, questions. Or, or just simply that someone doesn't want to uh, talk to someone when they come to the door. And Mark, we should also point out that this census is going to be conducted online uh, digitally more than mm -hmm. any census before. So if someone gets the email or the connection for that census and says, I'm scared because I don't want the intrusion, then that's another opportunity lost. There are big implications all the way around. Now, let me ask you this. Um, just how concerned are state leaders that the 2020 census is going to result in an undercount? I think they're very concerned. You have seen funding for um, for an effort at the state government level to ensure that there's a fair count. I think there's like a hundred million dollars that they've put aside for. Uh, yes, and created a, a quasi-state agency or a group mm -hmm. an uh, inside state government to deal with it. I think you're gonna hear more about outreach, about education to people, about what the census really means, especially if the, the, um, the citizenship question move forward. And I would not be surprised to see 
monitors, checkers, people trying to hold the system accountable in the state of California. I think the stakes are high. I think Democrats who lead the state, Governor Newsom and beyond, are going to keep an eye on it. And I'm wondering about this. What impact, if any, do you think the Trump administration's insistence on the citizenship question is going to have on the California Republican Party generally and the 2020 election in particular? Is there going to be any blowback? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. I have not heard a single thing from the California Republican Party about it. Uh, the Republican Party in the state already trying to figure out how it navigates the tricky waters of Donald Trumpism, uh, isms. And um, uh, I think that this is an interesting moment, right? Because the conventional wisdom could be you could line up behind the president and say citizenship matters, uh, or you could chart a different path and say citizenship matters, but this isn't the right way to go about it. It could be an opportunity for the Republican Party in California. But so far, uh, we haven't heard a lot. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, 40% of the California population is Latino. I, I, it would seem to be that this is going to have an impact one way or another um, on the outcome. Let me ask you this. I'm just trying to get my head around whether this makes sense politically. Um, you know, so you add the citizenship question, it's going to result in an undercount, but you know, it's not just going to affect California. You've also got red states like Texas, you've got purple states like Florida, of course you've got a large blue state like California, but isn't it going to impact all of these states if you have that citizenship I, I certainly, on that? I certainly think it could, and, and I, I think you would need uh, some kind of a researcher to give you the proper answer, but I go back to the fact that uh, no one that you're hearing that has concerns about this question is advocating that we, uh, for counting people who are in the U.S. illegally more, or that there's something, they're simply talking about the fear, the perception, the uh, lack of access to communities, the fact that um, the message can get muddled somewhere and no one wants to participate. That would seem to be a problem anywhere in the United States. But in California, with the dynamic that we've had, with the fear and the anger about it, um, I think it is probably um, uh, larger than it might be in those states. But you're right, it does raise a question about the whole country. You know, I want to ask you something. William Frey, who's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, has written that, quote, in the past, filling out the census was thought of as a national civic engagement exercise, which allows people to claim that they are residents of America. Politicization would not only lead to a flawed census count, but would uh, further inflame divisions that have come to come to four in the past two years. What does that say about the census? Uh, that, you know, one thinks that we can't have an objective, nonpartisan process mm -hmm. of counting residents. Now it's become politicized. I think it says, you know, quite honestly, what a lot of people who are watching the show know, that everything has become politicized, it seems like, in this mm -hmm. environment that we're sitting in right now. The census was a place we didn't think about it. Um, some of the services, the way we build roads and bridges and where we uh, do these things, they were not political animals in a different generation. You think about that, all these they topics have that have become politicized, and the mm -hmm. census, I think, is kind of a great example Yeah, right, because we all were taught that this is just like a head count. Yeah. And now it's no longer a head count, it's more complicated. It seems that. like it, nothing could be more objective. Mm -hmm. And so it's probably the greatest example of how hyper-partisan things have become. And and I think that no matter who wins this ultimate fight about that question, we're going to see a politicization and anger, and it's not going to go away. And that's the hard part of this. Oh boy. Well, with that, I want to thank our guest, John Myers of the LA Times. Things will get better. Yes. Um, also, California Secretary of State Alex Padilla and Sarah Bowen with the Public Policy Institute of California. Up next, whether a question about citizenship should be included in the 2020 census has, at least implicitly, become part of the immigration debate. A short time ago, we discussed some of the key issues around immigration. That conversation next. You're listening to the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition on KMJ. The national debate on immigration is perhaps being most felt in California, home to nearly a quarter of the nation's undocumented immigrants. That's over 2 million undocumented immigrants, constituting more than 6% of the state's population. 
What is the impact on education, jobs, social services, and crime? And what about the plight of the Dreamers under DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, the ongoing debate about a path to citizenship, and the state sanctuary policy? We'll ask Laura Hill with the Public Policy Institute of California, Taryn Luna with the Sacramento Bee, and Dan Walters with CalMatters. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. Chevron's Colinga Oil Field and Fresno County have been doing side-by-side for over 100 years. Learn more at doers.com. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Immigration has been the center of national and state politics for some time now. There's been a lot of commentary, but what are the facts when it comes to immigration and immigration policies? Our guest is Laura Hill from the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California one of the, and one of the leading authorities, actually, on immigration issues. Welcome to the Maddie Report. Thanks for having me. Um, so let's talk numbers. Um, how many undocumented immigrants call California home? The estimates are between about 2.4 and 2.6 million. Um, and that number is obviously pretty large. But that's uh, out of a population of, what, 39 million? That's right. They're about 6% of the population in California. Um, And nationally, they're about 11 million undocumented immigrants. So it varies from county to county, I assume. So which California counties have the greatest number and the greatest proportion of of immigrants? Or let's say undocumented, specifically undocumented residents. Um, They actually kind of mirror the counties for immigrants as well. So, you know, our large counties have larger numbers of undocumented immigrants. So Los Angeles County is up there at the top. With yeah, and looking at your statistics, like 804, uh, I think it's 814,000 uh, undocumented. That's, that's quite a large number. That's right. Almost a million. Um, that's right. But as a percentage of the county, it's actually not one of the highest, actually. Um, Monterey and San Benito counties are two counties that are more like 12% of their population is undocumented immigrants. And that's compared to about 6% for the state on average. And I'm guessing if you look at places like the San Joaquin Valley, it's going to be along those higher numbers. There are higher percentages in some of those counties, that's right, but the numbers of right. residents are obviously smaller. Right, but the percentage, right. percentage is quite large because they are attracted to certain industries like agriculture, for example, and so uh, the numbers will be larger. That's true, um, but Santa Clara County is actually right up there with about 10% of the population being undocumented. Can you explain why that is? Well, I think Santa Clara County um, has a lot of the industries that are popular among un- undocumented immigrants. There's uh, the service work and there's also construction um, and there can be some movement between agricultural settings like in Monterey and San Benito and um, different kind of hospitality things in it, Santa Clara. I, you know, it's kind of expensive to live there. I'm a little surprised. It is expensive to live there. Um, I'm not an expert on, on all of those issues, but definitely you hear stories about overcrowding and um, substandard housing all over the state. Or very, very long commutes. Or very long commutes. <laughs> That's right. Um, so it's interesting, uh, reading your, your materials, the, uh, the undocumented population is actually declining since 2007. You know, that probably surprised a lot of people. Uh-huh. Uh, it does because they're so popular, such a popular topic um, mm. in the news these days. But yeah, the population is definitely down from the peak of 2007. And I think there are two things happening. One is fewer undocumented, undocumented immigrants are coming. Um, that probably started with the Great Recession from 2007 to 2009. There were fewer opportunities for work, and that's really the draw for most undocumented immigrants. 
Um, and the other thing that's happening is increased deportations. And that's not um, just a phenomenon with the Trump administration. That was happening with the Obama administration that's as right. well. That's right. That was happening then, too. So where are, they, where are these undocumented immigrants coming from uh, to either the U.S. generally or California specifically? Uh, where in the state are they coming? No, or no, where what, are they coming from? What nations are they coming from? So um, they have largely been coming from Mexico, but... Recently, uh, there's been a little bit of a change that's still the predominant sending country, but fewer undocumented immigrants from Mexico have been coming lately, and that we've seen increases in numbers of undocumented immigrants coming from Central America and Asia. So that means in California right now, the percentage of our undocumented immigrants that are from Mexico is around 70%. Nationally, it's about 50%, and that's a decline from um, prior years. You were, you were mentioning earlier that the reason why undocumented immigrants come here is for economic opportunity, for jobs. Right. Um, what percentage of the California workforce uh, are undocumented workers? Are they also attracted? I'm assuming they're attracted to certain industries like ag and construction, et cetera. Yeah, they're about 9% of the California workforce. And recall, they're just about 6% of the California population. Um, and I think that's at least two things happening. One is the reason undocumented immigrants are coming right. is to work. So we shouldn't be surprised to see them kind of overrepresented in the workforce. Um, and second, undocumented immigrants are prime working age, they're much more likely to be in the 18 to 64 age range than Californians in general. I'm, I'm wondering, what if, how much unemployment exists with, un, with uh, undocumented? Is, there a, is it larger than the normal population or is it similar? Uh, that's a great question that I can't really answer off the top of my head. It's probably hard to know yeah, because yeah. they have to report that, right? So that's kind of difficult. Yeah. The, so our estimates about undocumented immigrants and participation in the workforce come from national surveys by and large. Um, and so it's pretty hard to get down into the, the granularity of that in, in particular regions in California. Um, certainly, when we look from the flip side at um, employment and poverty, uh, during the Great Recession, we saw that Latino low-skill immigrants uh, were, you know, behind in terms of earnings, but that's a different thing than saying they were more than more unemployed. You know, one of the arguments is that undocumented immigrants are taking, you know, American jobs, quote unquote. Um, is that true? Lo undocumented immigrants are, by and large, quite low-skilled. So many have not graduated from high school, um, and English is not proficient for them in many cases, and so they're really not competing with most Americans or most Californians for the jobs that those folks are interested in. You know, another argument, I'll just end here, we've only got about 20 seconds left in the segment, that is government benefits. The, one of the arguments is that they come here for government benefits. Is that true? Many California and, and federal benefits are not available for undocumented immigrants. U.S.-born children of undocumented immigrants are eligible for benefits, but okay, so it's they're kind of citizens. Yeah, it's, it, right, it's bifurcated. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, very good. Well, up next, we're going to talk about the children brought to the United States by undocumented parents. What happens to those folks? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, many undocumented immigrants live with family members who are legal residents. According to estimates by the Mitigation Policy Institute, more than 5 million children in the U.S. have an undocumented parent. Most of these children, 79%, are U.S. citizens, according to our guest, Laura Hill, from the nonpartisan PPIC. So these statistics indicate that a good number of children in California schools come from families with an undocumented immigrant. What are the numbers? It's about 12.3% of, um, of K-12 through school children are undocumented in California, and that's probably over 800,000 students in the state. And that, that impacts, I'm, I'm guessing, the, the scores of, of, of some of those schools, because these kids are having probably more, a little more difficult time in school? 
Um, well, I, we don't look at them separately in mm -hmm. any of the data that's collected by the state. Um, many of them are likely to be English learners. Um, we do have a variety of curriculum in place to help English learners catch yeah, up. Yeah, and then the state has been focusing on that uh, with the local control funding formula. The governor's made an attempt to, the legislature and the governor made an attempt to kind of fund those programs more. Let me kind of switch to, let's talk about DACA. Sure. Um, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, been in the news a lot lately. Uh, can you briefly describe the program and the number of young people who are affected nationally and also in California? So nationally, it's about 800,000 um, young people who have successfully applied for DACA. And in California, it's something like 230,000 that have successfully applied. So again, we're at about a quarter or more of the um, undocumented immigrants that fall into the DACA category. A large number. It is a large number. And the DACA program, what it does is provides a way for young people who came to the United States while children, so before they turned 16, to apply for uh, protection from deportation and also allows them to be eligible for work permits. So many of these young people um, were able to come out of the shadows and work and continue their educations. Um, and it's not just those two requirements about age and uh, their arrival and uh, how old they are now, um, but they also have to demonstrate that they have not committed any kinds of crimes that disqualify them, um, and they need to have been continuing their education. But they have to provide this information. So you said they're coming out of the shadows. They now provide it. They've provided this information. And they're probably wondering now what, if DACA ends, now the government has all this information. They know that they're here, you know, they're undocumented. Mm -hmm. I think they're worried for themselves and also for their family members, because many of them are with parents who are likely to still be undocumented. Yeah, so there gets to the whole issue of this ongoing debate about undocumented immigrants and the path to citizenship. It's mm -hmm. been hotly debated. Um, where are Californians on that issue? Californians um, now are uh, in favor of offering a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. I believe it's something like 68% of Californians that have said they favor a path to citizenship. Um, so Californians, you know, the state that has the most experience with undocumented immigrants uh, looks a little different from some other parts of the country. And, and that, you guys have been polling this for some time. Mm -hmm. And, and what's the trend line been over time? Has uh, has, have Californians become more amenable to seeing uh, undocumented have a pathway to citizenship? Has it gone down? Has it just stayed the same? I think it's been, in recent years, it's been pretty steady. Um, and there are other questions that we've asked about um, should there be a way for citizens to be able, for undocumented immigrants to stay in the country? And it's been about 82%. And then this becoming a citizen question is about 68%. So they're not, they're not, they're not wanting to kick undocumented uh, immigrants out of, out of the country. They're not. Um, and in September, the survey actually asked if Californians were in favor of the protections afforded by DACA. And again, a majority of Californians answered that they were after it had been announced that the plans were to cancel it. Yeah, it's, it, yeah because you said the experience here is different. And also, a lot of these industries rely on it. You also mm -hmm. have you know, business groups and, and ag groups, for example, um, supporting uh, mm -hmm. immigration reform because their workforce comes from there. When the estimates that we've done in um, the state show that these are Californians across many, many communities. So these are neighbors, these are schoolmates, these are co-workers. Are we going to see these issues go away in the near term? Or is this, this is going to be continuing on this conversation? Um, I thought when I started working on the issue, we were close to the end of it, you know, over a decade ago. And it doesn't well, feel last, like it. The last immigration reform was, what, 1986? That's right. Major immigration reform. And, uh, it's that, been a little while. That was supposed to solve the issue, and, it, and I guess it didn't. It did so not. So we will be talking about it, it sounds like. Well, up I next, so. Up next, um, this, uh, immigration has been an active issue in the legislature. What passed, what didn't, and why? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. 
Lawmakers at the state capitol spent most of the last year taking shots at immigration policies coming out of Washington, pledging to protect California's undocumented community with legislation of their own. Some were signed into law, some not. Our guest is Taryn Luna with the Sacramento Bee, uh, who has a front row seat, hasn't had a front row seat to the policy debates, and we're delighted to have her join us. Welcome to the Matter Report. Thank you for having me. So the signature law that came out of the Capitol this year was SB 54, the state's sanctuary policy. It was hotly debated. Um, how would it work? So the state can do very little to curtail federal activities, uh, federal immigration enforcement within California, right? So the general idea is that they're focusing on limiting what state and local police uh, can do and how they can assist the federal government with um, immigration enforcement. So the bill um, makes it so that police can't inquire about someone's immigration status, they can't um, participate in border patrol activities, they can't be deputized as, deputized as immigration agents. Um, unless this someone is wanted on a federal warrant or they have committed one of more than 800 different crimes that are carved out in the bill. So that, that, was, a, that was a big addition uh, added by the governor at the governor's insistence. He increased that number of crimes that were uh, covered. Yeah, there were some 60 crimes that were kind of considered carve-outs initially. So if you committed one of these crimes, then a lot of these protections were kind of wiped away. The governor intervened and expanded that list to over 800 different crimes. That's quite an expansion. It is quite an expansion. It was really worried a lot of the advocates uh, who were kind of supporting the bill along the way. Um, and, it, you know, it, it allows you to... Um, notify the federal government if someone's being released and they have committed some of One these of those crimes. 800 crimes or if they have a federal warrant. Yes, exactly. Um, so there were some groups that were opposed to this. Who were, were they and why were they opposed? Uh, the main opponent of the bill was the California Sheriff's Association. They largely didn't like the way that they thought it restricted their ability to enforce immigration violations or to help um, the federal government. They wanted to be able to continue to work on task forces. They argued that um, by saying that the uh, federal agents couldn't work with them in their jails, that it would then push people out and push them into the streets and go into communities and homes and things like that, and then kind of rounding up people who are generally law-abiding citizens who then, you know, kind of fall through the cracks. At the end of the day, though, I think it, was, it might have been in one of your articles, um, the uh, head of the California Sheriff's Association said that he thought that the governor dealt with the bulk of the problem uh, when he added these additional laws. Yeah, so we saw some early amendments that the sheriffs wanted, and it was a largely a strikeout of almost the entire bill. Um, in the end, Jerry Brown did remedy a lot of the different things that they wanted, but they still remained opposed. Um, they also, the LA Times at one point had reported that they were working with ICE to kind of uh, oppose the bill and to try to kill the bill. So mm -hmm. I think it was kind of a fundamental opposition in a lot of ways. Okay. Um, so there were other immigration laws uh, that were passed uh, and signed into law. What were some of the other laws that were signed into law this year? Uh, one is AB 450, which keeps federal authorities out of uh, private workplaces unless they have a judicial warrant. Another one, uh, SB 31, was meant to curtail Trump's uh, Muslim registry, which would prohibit public employees from providing information for a registry based on religion, national origin, or ethnicity. Um, another bill would have made it illegal, or which was passed, made it illegal um, for landlords to essentially uh, out your immigration status or threaten to out your immigration status. That's a way for someone, if they were complaining about their apartment or something like that, they say, better not complain or we're going to report you. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the water's leaking or whatnot, the, you know, and you can't really complain or do a whole lot about it. Um, there were also some other immigration proposals uh, that were passed by the legislature, but they were not signed into law, uh, or maybe even didn't pass both houses of the legislature. 
What were some of those that didn't make it? So some that didn't pass the legislature were kind of interesting. One was meant to kind of stop the border wall by uh, preventing the state from awarding contracts to any company that essentially provided goods or services to the border wall's construction. Uh, that didn't even pass the legislature. Um, it's another, almost like blackballing those companies. If they get involved, they make a bid, then they're out of the equation for state projects. Yeah, it was a Ricardo Lara bill, and that was kind of the general idea was, you know, if you take on these, you work with federal government for this uh, to build the wall, then you you can kind of uh, count out all future state contracts. Right, okay. Um, any other ones that were uh, were talked about in the legislature but didn't make it? Uh, another that didn't pass the legislature would have prohibited the disclosure of information that undocumented immigrants could provide for uh, college grants, um, driver's license, medical care, and public services, and things like that, which also failed in the legislature. You think we're going to see more of this uh, in the, the next uh, next year? I don't get the sense that lawmakers are done here. Um, I think that they'll push, continue to push next year. Some of these things that didn't pass, they've already promised to bring back in a different form next year. You know, that happens a lot. They, they bring it up in one year, doesn't make it, but they're, they're dogging about it. They'll bring it back the next year. The benefit of a two-year session, yes. You always <laughs> get a second shot. There you go. Well, thank you very much. Up next, we're going to talk about immigration politics with veteran political observer Dan Walters of Cal Matters. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Given the state's changing demographics, it's no surprise that immigration has become a political hot potato. But does what passes for good politics pass for good policy? We're joined by veteran political observer Dan Walters of Cal Matters. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Thank you. Um, so you've written that it's time for Californians to, quote-unquote, take a chill pill when it comes to DACA and other immigration issues. Why? Well, I think it's becoming kind of an obsession with California politicians, and I think it'll become very evident in next year's elections that... It's, all you're going to hear is Trump, 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 Trump. And, yeah, it plays well, with, particularly within the Democratic Party, particularly with Democratic Party uh, interest groups. Uh, but, look, California's got a lot of issues, uh, starting with the housing crisis, for example. And it's, it doesn't really, it's maybe gratifying and emotionally uh, uh, satisfactory to do all this Trump, Trump, Trump stuff. But it doesn't get you there when it's stuff that Trump has nothing to do with housing crisis. He has nothing to do with a lot of the other issues that face California. We still have transportation problems. We still have education problems. We still have water problems. We have all sorts of things going on that have absolutely nothing to do with Donald Trump. And it seems to me that the, the first responsibility of California politicians is to take care of California's issues and not just posture. Yes, they get some lots of national publicity. They get to go on national TV shows. They get to do this and that. And, but... What's that do for California? Well, the counter would be there's 200,000 Californians that are dreamers, for example, that are yeah. affected by DACA, so, and, and the families that are affected. It I'm not saying people. ignore the issue. I'm just saying put it in perspective. Yeah, and, and also, it's possible that the, the militancy in California, on, particularly on immigration issues, may be counterproductive. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. Um, you talked about uh, sanctuary state, the sanctuary state issue and how that might come back and, and bite California. Uh, how so? Well, we have to keep our eye on the bottom line. The bottom line of all this should be some sort of immigration reform that makes those folks that are in California and other states uh, illegally, but they're otherwise law-abiding and productive citizens. There should be some pathway to legalization and perhaps citizenship, and that can only be done by Congress. California can't do that. It can try all it wants to to semi-legalize people, but they're not legal until the federal government says they're legal. And by taking the attitude that California has, it kind of invites backlash elsewhere in the country and in Congress. And 
you know, it's you kind of wonder sometimes whether people are waving this bloody shirt just to be waving the bloody shirt, or they're really trying to do something about the issue itself, and that the people, the uh, people who are in the country illegally, undocumented, the Dreamers and everyone else, maybe just being pawns in some gigantic political game. But remember, it's real life to them. It really affects the life, and the uh, the the goal should be to make life easier for them, not to just stir up political angst. You know, it seems like the immigration issue is something that's uh, dividing uh, business. Business and ag seem to be on one side of that equation, and the Republicans, some of the uh, more uh, populist wings of the, of the Republican Party seem to be on the other side of the issue. Is that going to split the California Republican Party? More than it's already split? <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. It is, it, it is an issue that divides business and agriculture from, the, I guess, the, uh, the real true believing rib, red rock, red blood red Republicans, I guess we could say. Uh, but so that be, I mean, it, it, the business and agricultural position reflects the reality. The reality is we have several million uh, undocumented immigrants in California. They play integral roles in the California economy. We would be stuck in many respects, particularly agriculture. Yeah, you think about agriculture. It's tourism, huge. Uh, people who work construction. in restaurants, construction, hotels, they're doing jobs that need to be done in the economy that don't pay very much money, and a lot of people are not going to be willing to fill that hole. So let's, let's just recognize it, and I think the business and, and uh, ag communities see that, and they say, hey, let's get real here, and, and that is real. Uh, and... Uh, Yes, it may divide the Republican Party, but so what? They're divided on other, yeah. all other issues as well. So the well. idealist versus the pragmatist, maybe. Um, so this hardline stance that, that some people in the Republican Party in California are taking, if they continue down that path, are they going to seal the fate of the Republican Party in California for another generation? More than it's already been sealed? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they will. They'll, they'll completely they'll isolate themselves more and more from the California mainstream and become less and less relevant as time uh, goes on. Uh, you know, the funny thing is these things turn very quickly. It's only been slightly over 20 years ago that uh, Democrats were worried that the immigration issue was going to backfire on them. And they were scampering to do things like cut off driver's license to illegal immigrants and so forth. So these things turn very quickly. But I think in this particular case, yes, the Republicans are on the wrong side, as it were, the, and, and will do nothing but suffer more losses because of it. You think it's going to temper, though, some of the Republican candidates' uh, positions on immigration as we go to the next election? I mean, they're looking at the demographics of their districts, and they're saying, maybe we can't take that hard line. Well, stance. it already is. You have Republican congressmen from agricultural areas, for example, Mr. Valdeo and, and, and so forth, who are already uh, split from the party, I guess, the party mainstream on that issue. They see the reality in their own districts. They see the reality in their own political fortunes that that uh, Latinos are a large part of their constituency and, and, and they don't want to, uh, they don't want to uh, alienate them. So, I mean, you're already seeing that happen uh, quite a bit, as a matter of fact. Well, I want to thank Dan Walters for Cal Madison uh, joining us, as well as Laura Hill from PPIC and Taryn Luna from the Sacramento Bee. The views and opinions expressed in the Matter Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed on the Maddie Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.